good morning. Welcome to Chesterland Baptist Church. I'm Pastor Jerry DeHart, and we want to welcome you to celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And as we think about uh, coming together for worship, I'm uh, mindful of what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again according to, uh, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, the coronavirus certainly is a test for a lot of us as we're trying to trust God, trust our leadership, learning to follow uh, government guidelines and the CDC and everything we need to really make ourselves safe and protected. But Peter would say, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, uh, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you, do, you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of the, your faith the salvation of your souls. Well, as we, begin, as we begin this morning, we want to think about uh, why we're here to worship God, and that's because Jesus Christ is alive and well, and he'll get us through all these seasons and trials, but there's something far greater than what we're suffering, what we're going through, and it's the fact that God is with us, and therefore we can look to him. Even though we can't see him, we can see him at work among us. And so as we uh, open up with a word of prayer and praise, would you bow with me now? And we're just going to uh, ask the Lord to come and, and listen to us, and, and we can listen to him. Pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you for this great day. Thank you that you work out things in this very moment, according to plans that you have formed even before you created the world. Thank you that you know. Thank you that you care. And that we can cast our, our burdens on you because you do care for us. And as we come into your presence this morning, Father, we just uh, thank you for, for what the Son has done for us. And we come boldly to the throne of grace knowing that forgiveness is ours that you embrace us fully as sons and daughters through faith in him. <clears throat> and the Father, that you're doing something among us through the, through the whole national ordeal and through the global crisis with this virus. But thank you that you're doing all these things to test our faith and to show your glory. Thank you, Lord. And so now as we come into your presence, we praise you for your goodness. We believe that. 
and we rest in your promise, we believe that. But knowing that you are risen and you're seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us now, we believe that. So, Father, as we turn to you, would you turn to us and open our hearts and open your word, and we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. <clears throat> uh, the sermon title this morning is called Unstoppable. It's unstoppable because as I was thinking about what we're doing in the book of Acts and what Paul Paul went through in his, in his own personal story and journey, you begin to realize that, that God is always pushing us through, pushing the limit, pushing us into territories that he wants us to go and getting us out of things that lead us away from the knowledge of him. And so... Paul would say in Philippians, Philippians 3, 8 through 10, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so here you have Paul moving away from his old lifestyle into a new lifestyle of a relationship that's intimate with God. So as you begin to think about what this resurrection means, if I if I were to use one word, it would be the word movement. An unstoppable movement because Aslan is on the move. The Lion of Judah, as C.S. Lewis would say, Aslan is on the move. So is the Holy Spirit. So as we get into the book of Acts this morning, I want you to keep an eye on what God is doing to move people into the kingdom of God, into the power of the resurrection, into that relationship where they know Christ better and better. So I'm going to do this topsy-turvy. I'm going to start with the end of the passage in Acts 12, 24, and give you this, this one verse to lead us into the, in, into the story. Acts 12, 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. The logos, the word of God, theos, continued to spread and flourish. There's a movement about when the gospel is mobilized throughout uh, the New Testament, you find the Spirit of God is at work. And so, as you keep in mind this word movement, let's begin to read Acts chapter 12 from the beginning and go with me because you're going to find God moving his people and doing a certain work here that's going to be wonderful. Um, 
Acts 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, and intending to persecute them, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to the to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the sentry stood guard at the entrance. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea what the angel was doing was actually happening. So he thought he was seeing a vision. And so they passed through the first and the second guards, and they came to the iron gate leading to the city, and it opened up for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself, and he said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So Peter uh, knocked at the outside entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. But when she kept insisting it was so, they said, well, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and they saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand, uh, for them to be quiet. And he described how the Lord brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had, thought, had uh, a thorough, thorough search made for him, and he did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and he ordered them that they, be, they would be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and he stayed there. 
Uh, he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and they sought an audience with him. And securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended upon the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, when Herod was wearing his royal robes, he sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking them, taking with them John, also called Mark. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. I don't know about you. Sometimes when I, when I read the Bible, I come across stories that have nothing to do with my life. And I'm thinking, how, what, what do I do with this? How do I read this passage? And sometimes I have an expectation that God's got to speak to me in my situation, as opposed to me going into this Bible, letting the Bible tell me in that, that context what's going on. So as I get into this passage, I was, I was, uh, I was with a friend this week, who was uh, actually not in prison and not in a situation anywhere near this, but he had fallen off the wagon, and uh, been drinking again, and had, had some real problems. And he asked me, he asked me, he said, where? Where is the power of the resurrection? I don't get it. And then when I told him, told him about Acts and what I was learning, he said, well, that's like me. I'm like Peter, uh, and I want God to take my chains of alcohol off of me. And as I began to share with him, I said, this passage isn't about that. Can you read into the Bible your own personal situation um, and expect God to remove the change from you? Well, I'm, I'm saying if you read this passage that way, you're really missing the point of the passage, and you're distorting what the Holy Spirit wants you to get. So I don't want you to start with where you are. Let's go back and start with what the Bible is saying and bring the meaning out towards us so that we can apply it. And what I mean by that is a couple of weeks ago, I talked about reading the Bible with a man-centered approach as opposed to having a God-centered approach, that we think about Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Well, it wasn't Joshua that fought. It was God gave Joshua the strength to fight the battle of Jericho. And so when we say David and Goliath, we talk about a man-centered approach. And as we get into the story, there's stories about there are stories about people, but I don't want you to focus on what the people are doing I want you to focus on what God is doing because Aslan is on the move. The Holy Spirit is on the move. If you focus on people, and this, story, this passage is a lot about people,
but I want you to keep your eye on what the Holy Spirit is doing. There are basically three people uh, that we're going to look at. Herod, uh, James, and Peter. And then you've got the body of Christ that's praying in, in the background. But these are the three guys I want to focus on. And I want to look at the lessons that the Holy Spirit uh, wants us to learn from these guys. Because if he can work in these men, whatever particular issues that are going on for us, just know that God can move in your life likewise as well. But we're going to talk about Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa James the son of Zebedee, and the Apostle Peter. Keeping in mind that, that we are under a tutor, we are under a master teacher, and that the way we see things is the way he sees things. And therefore, as Luke 6.40, uh, as Jesus would say, that a student is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he's been fully trained, will be like their teacher. We want to think like Christ and think like what the Spirit of God is doing in the body of Christ. Um, when I became a young, when I was a young, uh, still I'm young, uh, and when I was a young Christian, I met a man at a conference named Francis Schaefer. And Francis Schaefer was a Presbyterian pastor who became an author and uh, and influenced my life through his works. But I remember in, uh, in 1976 or so, in Indianapolis, Francis Schaeffer came over, and he shared his personal concerns about the church. Because what was happening in his world, as he understood and as he thought it, was that the church had become more man-centered, and that he became more disillusioned and cynical, almost to the point of almost giving up his faith. And I remember, I remember in a talk from uh, in Indianapolis, uh, the phrase, which is a Schaeferism, is that the church was aping the world. And I didn't understand that because I was a young believer. But since then, as a pastor, I've become understanding that when we look at what, how the church goes about doing the work and how we are to move in the world, sometimes we adapt according to uh, the methods and the, and the values that the way we think God works in the world is similar to the way the world works in the world. And... Uh, uh, we have become more of a society, as Donald Bloch would say, where the humanist idea of happiness or interior well-being was incorporated into the Christian faith without any drastic modification so that religion was given a decidedly anthropocentric orientation, a man-centeredness. Now, it is generally acknowledged that much popular religion is both conservative and liberal theology is narcissistic, egocentric, focusing on our inner feelings and purely on personal hopes and goals. So when it comes to talking about God, 
God is necessary to help people attain the desires of their hearts to find perfect happiness. Some even make the object of religion uh, sound like capitalist consumerism, acquiring the goods in this life. But is prosperity an inevitable concomitant of true faith? Do they go together? Well, if you look at what, what we're finding happening in the church, we find that celebrityism, convenience, questionable market techniques, questionable morality, the bigger is better mentality, consumer mentality, and entertainment value versus what Schaefer was talking about, to have a high regard for truth and practice of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, both in content and methodologies. And so when you find, when you find that um, people are preaching only to hear what, they, what is entertaining and not what is substantial or not what is um, culturally controversial, you get, a, you get a comfortable church, an entertained church. It's so easy to adapt to the world. It's so easy to try to accommodate to people's thinking to make the gospel relevant. Our goal is not to make the gospel relevant to the world. Our goal is to make the gospel relevant to the will of God. And therefore, as Tim Keller would say, he's had people talk to him and say, I don't find Christ I don't care if Christianity is true. It's irrelevant to me. And therefore, try to marketing the gospel to be uh, to appeal to people on the basis of argument or personal needs. But what he would go on to say, what Tim Keller was trying to teach us is, what I want you to see is what Christianity offers so that you would think, if I understand what this God is saying and doing, uh, this would really be great if it were true. And so you start with the offer of Christ and what he does for you. And then you move into the issues about, is it true for you? What Paul is trying to get us to realize is that salvation without this relationship on Christ, without you can have Jesus as your Savior and not walk with him as your Lord, is really not, uh, um, is not what the Spirit of God is after. So Paul would say to us, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and being built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And see to it that no one takes you captive through the hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends upon human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Well, all that to say is that when God wants to do something to move people, he's going to move the gospel through men. Because men and women of God are God's methods. That's what E.M. Bounds would say. And the church is looking for better methods, and God is looking for better men. Because spiritual work is taxing work, and men are loath to do it. Well, when you come to the New Testament, 
And you find Paul working. You find Peter working. You find James working. You find what's going on in the book of Acts. Um, you find that the Spirit of God is going to be working, not according to the world, but according to the, what the purposes and the plans that God has. And Paul had to rethink his method, his approach to the ministry, and to the mission strategy to reach the people with, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And so I ask, are his conclusions and the example that he gives us for missions still relevant today? If so, what would Paul's ministry look like here in Chesterland, Ohio, or anywhere else we go? I'm going to look at each of these three guys, and I want to get two lessons from each of them that we begin to think, how do we cooperate more with the Holy Spirit instead of cooperating more with the world? First, unstoppable Herod. As you get into the story, uh, you find that this man was the same Herod who was after the, the, uh, the, the babies when Jesus was born. He was a narcissistic, dominant, tyrant, uh, implacable kind of man that he would uh, use any, uh, take advantage of any system for his own personal gain. And so there are two lessons we, we're going to learn from uh, dealing with a guy like Herod. Uh, how do you stop someone who's really given fully uh, to his narcissism and his, and his uh, political manipulations? because he's a man of expedience. Things we learn from Herod is that, one, the Holy Spirit has to give us discernment and wisdom to deal with a narcissistic, evil personality. And two, we need courage and conviction to deal when there's persecution from such a person. In, uh, in the scriptures, we are taught that when it comes to dealing with people, that there are uh, a group of people who would be in this category, as Scott Peck would say, there are people of the lie. There are people fully given to darkness. There are people who are prosperous at the expense of other people's lives. And so David would say in Psalm 37, 1, do not fret because of those who are evil. Or do not be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. And like the green plants, they will soon die away. But trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And commit your way to the Lord. Trust him, and he will do this. It's hard to do that when somebody like Herod's in control to believe that that the tension and the and the trauma the damage that he's going to do is real and so here in the book of, of acts you start off with the story of of the death because of this man named Herod and he goes after he goes after James he goes after James now let me just say that this James isn't isn't the one who wrote the New Testament James. He's not the brother of Christ. He's James of the family of Zebedee. James and John of the family 
the sons of Zebedee. They were known as the sons of thunder. And James, in particular, was the one that that Herod Herod was going after. It's not James the less, the other disciple. Uh, and so he's got a particular role, but Herod is after James. Um, and when you come across a guy like Herod, who is going to go after and persecute the church, and he's not going to stop uh, with the murder of James, he's going to go on to Peter, and he's going to go on to the rest of the church, much like Paul did uh back when Stephen was was martyred. But but Herod, um, Herod is a, an evil man. How do you deal with an evil ruler like this? How do you deal with a, a tyrant? Well, I've been reading in Job, and here's a little passage from Job that God said to Job. Job, adorn yourself with eminence and dignity, and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. If you think that you're powerful enough to question me, Job, you pour out the overflowings of your anger, and you, Job, look on everyone who is proud, and you, Job, make him low. Job, you deal with the evil guy, and you look on everyone who's proud, and you, Job, humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Job couldn't do that. Job was inadequate to deal with the evil man. And so are you, and so am I. The passage for us here indicates that there's only one person who can handle evil, and that's God himself. And God does as he speaks to Herod, and as he goes on, you'll see later on. But you have to have the uh, courage and the conviction, one, to trust God, and then to turn them over to God. And because you need to know what Jesus said, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours as well. Uh, John fifteen twenty. So when it comes to Herod, James is the target. And he's killed. Herod killed James. And when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he went to arrest Peter. How do you deal with an evil man? You turn him over to God and let God take care of him. And you'll see here in a little bit he will. Let's go to the book of James. Let's go to uh, James for a moment. James was such a fascinating man and yet so little is written about him. If you think about this one, uh, James <clears throat> James is really the powerhouse of the, of the apostles here. James is always listed before John, James and John, and John become the, the one who wrote the book of Revelation. John is the last one alive on, of the apostles. James is the first one of the apostles to be martyred. But John and James, or James and John, were with Christ from the beginning, which says to me that James is a man of loyalty and of devotion to the Lord himself. And that's what you can understand, that if you have a man that's so committed, he's unstoppable. 
And this was James. But James was willing and, and to be expended for Christ. And so he surrendered his life knowing fully, completely, that he was a follower of Christ. A guy like James, you couldn't stop because of his convictions. <clears throat> and what happened was James was more powerful in, among the group that Herod decided to ignore Peter and go after James. And so they could handle Peter. They could arrest Peter. They didn't arrest James. They put him to death. And so the thing with uh, the story of James, you see that James must have been filled with the Spirit as he went through the whole thing. But the amazing thing, with all the story about, all the text about Stephen the martyr, James only gets six little words. He was killed with a sword. Nothing else is said about James. He didn't talk about uh, where he was or how he, how he fought. I bet he was uh, uh, not one to give up easily. But nothing is said about this man except he was killed with a sword. In a corner of a sentence, he was killed with a sword. And that's the end of his story. Quiet, emboldened, courageous, filled with the Spirit, killed with the sword. No. God knew that. James must have known that. Now we come to Peter. For some reason, the text is a lot about Peter and the story of Peter. But think about this. If, if you were Peter and you just saw James being killed with a sword, Herod was after him, what would you feel? Much like the persecution of Stephen and others, but something happens, I think, along the way with Peter. Peter is learning that with the resurrected Christ and, and death being not an issue now because we have eternal life and because of the loyalty and because of the courage and the conviction, Peter wasn't panicking. Actually, when you see the arrest uh, and the story here in the book of Acts, you don't find Peter seemed to be worried at all. He was sleeping. He was just kind of going with the flow. But when they arrested Peter, I'm sure Peter had learned his lesson that he could trust God through this. It didn't say much about, didn't say much from Peter. It's almost as though he was unaware but very much present. But through Peter's story, we learn these lessons. And Peter, I think, continued to grow, which made him more uh, unstoppable as he goes through, that Peter learned that God could bring deliverance through spiritual intervention. And he did see that. As Psalm 37.4 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Well, can you imagine you're chained in prison, in jail, you've got two soldiers on both sides, two soldiers at the gates, and here comes an angel in the middle of the night and wakes you up, pushes you, said, come on, Peter, get with it, slaps you on the face and gets you, and, 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 and the chains fall off. And Peter's walking almost 
unaware through the through the halls or whatever out the gates and walking with that angel for a, a, a block or so not fully aware until he realizes God has done something for him that he could not do for himself. Peter would, was to learn that lesson that God was going to be with him fighting his battles all the way through. But when he was standing on that street and the chains were gone and now he was free and he came to, he went home, went to the home of Mary. And what did he find when he was at that home? That they were still in prayer. One of the lessons here in this passage is that the Holy Spirit moves through intercessory prayer. And when the church is praying, the Spirit is moving people. And that's still a lesson for us today. As God moved Peter uh, by the prayers of the people, the Holy Spirit responded and delivered Peter. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church. So these are some lessons for us there. Again, what had happened was after Peter had uh, um, been delivered, let me go back to the story of Herod. Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there and had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they joined together and they sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended upon the king's country for their food. And it concludes the story where Herod had a, a, a political problem where he had people coming to him from Tyre and Sidon that needed the food. And so because of an economic decision, uh, uh, Herod decided that he was going to uh, uh, have this gathering and he would give this speech and when he was uh, speaking his public address to the people they shouted this is the voice of a god and not of a man immediately because Herod did not give praise to God an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died that's a funny passage for me but I want you to hear that if, if the church was earnestly praying for Peter to be released, and God released him, and he was, they were earnestly praying, praying for, for James, and God didn't release him, I bet they were earnestly praying for Herod. And this was the outcome when the Holy Spirit intervened and finally took out Herod, the obstacle for the church to grow in the area. And because of that, because of that, it says in Acts 12, 24, that the church of God, then uh, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Why? Because the work of the Holy Spirit removes the obstacles of his people by prayer. And he moves men to stand up for the gospel, whatever the circumstance. What you see happening is the Spirit of God is moving his people 
onward and outward in an unstoppable, an unstoppable manner. And therefore, Paul and Barnabas would go back to this group and continue to encourage them and strengthen them. Paul would later on to say to the Corinthians, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully, abounding unstoppably to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Well, how does that work out in Chesterland Baptist? How does it work out in your life? How does it work out in my life? I think there are things here that God wants us to look at, whether it's understanding that the methods that we use will be aping the world, or the methods we use will be following this immovable, unstoppable spirit. Men are God's methods, but men filled with the Spirit of God will be the ones that mobilize the gospel. And through them, the Word of God spread throughout the region. May God give you the wisdom and the discernment, the ability to be loyal and faithful, that you would work in such a way that you would see the Spirit of God answering your prayer and make you strong and stand up for Christ. Have a great week.